Um, we're going to be again in Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3 um, today. And if uh, you want to use a pew Bible, it'll be on page 981, 981. Um, you know, last summer I began to feel it, I began to feel like I'm getting older. And so I decided in the summer that I was going to start exercising regularly. Because, you know, we all get older, don't we, Rick? We do, don't we? And I decided that, I, you know, I have no, you know, I have no clues to how long I'm going to live. That's all in the Lord's hands. But one of the things I do know is I do not want to be Jabba the Hutt as I grow older. <laughs> and so I began to work out. And um, I've enjoyed that quite a bit. Sometimes it's hectic because of the schedule and everything. And I'm not a morning person. I just, I'm not. I try and I can't be. Uh, but um, anytime I work out in the morning, I get kind of sick. And that's just the way it is. So um, I've enjoyed it. I've worked hard. And um, I, I'm starting to feel at least the benefits. I'm very sore from Friday because I did some things I haven't done before. But uh, there's one thing for sure about working out like that is I have no intention of ever being like Jason or ever being uh, someone who breaks world records. And I was looking up some world records this week, and if I were to take this tape measure, and when I were to walk down here, and I were to stand about right here and go to that wall right there, that's about uh, 29 feet. 8.95 meters is the world record. The first record, which was 8.90 meters, was set in 1968, the year I was born. And in 1991, it was broken. Carl Lewis, it looked like, broke it to begin with. He was right on the edge. But he did not. A man right after him named Mark Powell, Mike, I'm sorry, Mike Powell came in Tokyo and, and did the, the, the running broad jump and jumped for 8.95 meters. Now, I want you to think about that just for a minute. Will that record ever be broken from 1968 to 1991? That's a long time, right? Will it be broken? I don't know. One of the football players last year broke the standing broad jump record. At least, I don't know if it's official, but he jumped 12 feet. Just standing and jumping, 12 feet. And that did, if that's true, it did break the world record. Now, if the world record is ever broken again, it won't be by much. I assure you it won't. We all know that no one can really jump even a quarter of a mile, much less a mile. We know that. We have limitations as humans. Now, not only does it teach us something about physical reality that we have limitations, but it also teaches us about spiritual reality. As hard as we work, as much as we may try to justify ourselves, we can never earn a right standing before God. And that is Paul's uh, concern as he pours out his heart to the Philippians this morning. So if you would, look in your Bibles. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Let us hear the Word of God. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out. 
for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I gain, whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. May it penetrate our hearts. May it show us truth. And may we rest in its truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A question that is before us all because we will all die someday is the the question that the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas in Philippi years before Paul wrote this letter. He asked this question, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And as we get to the answer of that ultimate of all ultimate questions, Paul exposes one of the dangers from without in the community and also, I believe, from within. From Adam and Eve all the way to you and me, this is the problem. And here is Paul's warning. His warning is this to us. Do not be fooled by false teachers or anything that presses us to think that our acts can make one acceptable to God. And so what we're going to see today, what we're going to unpack are two things. We're going to unpack what it looks like to be counterfeit and what it looks like to be grace fit. And those are play on words, by the way, if you see. I did not misspell that. They're play on words there in your little handout. So the first thing that we see here is a warning against the counterfeit life. The warning against the counterfeit life. Repetition is what's going on here. It is a great thing in knowing and understanding the things of the Lord is to have it repeated to us. Paul is saying, I'm repeating these things to you. It's good and it's safe for you. Uh, this week, um, someone referenced uh, John Newton that I was, uh, it was, I think it was a video that I was watching. I mentioned this in the men's Bible study Thursday morning. It was John Newton, and, and he was saying that as we grow more in depth of understanding of God's Word, as, as, as we respond to it, as we listen to it, as we repeat it over and over and over again, it becomes so much of a part of us that we are like musicians like, like, like Jason, um, like Brian, that, that's playing, and, and it's like they don't have to think about it. It just happens. It just flows from them. As we soak in the Word of God, it becomes second nature to us. So repetition here is a good thing. And this repetition is a warning that Paul comes to. And the Scriptures are full of this warning, actually, in the New Testament. Verse 2, look at it. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What is Paul saying here? Again, 
Do not be fooled by false teachers or anything that presses us to think that acts can make one acceptable to God. This is what he's repeating to, to them. So who are these dogs and the evildoers and the mutilators that are the reason for this warning? Now I want to tell you something. Paul is not falling back into junior high playground antics by calling people names. He is not taking on the persona of a pro wrestler. Talking trash about the other people. He is not becoming a politician here. Mudslinging. That's not what he's doing. No, Paul is being very careful in his wording here. One commentator noted that this wording is carefully chosen to reflect the fact that these teachers are actually the reverse of what they claim to be. So Paul is turning the tables on them, so to speak. To understand that, we need to go back a little bit into the life of the early church. If you remember, as you read the Scriptures, the first believers in Jesus were, of course, Jews. And some of these Jewish followers thought that all Christians, especially Gentile Christians, were required, in addition to believing in Jesus as the Messiah, to keep the Mosaic ceremonial ritual of circumcision. These Jews were known as the Judaizers. They not only emphasized the need to be circumcised, but from time to time they they talked about the need to follow food laws and other uh, ritual practices of the ceremonial law of Moses that that was given to him at Mount Sinai. In other words, this is what they believed. They believed in Jesus plus all these Jewish ceremonial requirements that one had to keep if they were truly going to live as the people of God in this world. And again, what Paul does is he turns the tables. The first thing he notes here is that they're dogs. They're dogs. Okay. Now Silas Poteet, I want to tell you something. I know you want one of these little beagles, right? You want a little beagle. Well, back in the Bible days, little beagles were hated. I hate to tell you that. (laughs) Little beagles were not allowed into the house because they were dirty. They were filthy. They were awful. They were mean. They would stand out into the the streets. They would bark at people. They were vicious. And to be honest with you, they were generally hated. I hate to burst your bubble about your desire for a beagle. The Jewish believers at that time would use that term dog to point to Gentiles. They're dogs. They're generally hated. They're annoyance. They bark. They eat nasty meat. You see what I'm saying? They just call, he, so that's what they called them. And so as, as they would look at this, Paul is, is ironically applying the term back to the Jewish people, the Judaizers, I should say. And you've got to be careful I don't want to say that he's saying this to all Jews, because he's not, because some of them are believers in Christ and brothers in Christ. But the Scripture lays it out that way lots of times. But let's just do it more precisely and say the Judaizers. So he's looking at these Judaizers and he's saying, you're the dogs, you're the ones not part of the true circumcision. Sinclair Ferguson notes, these false teachers with their Jewish teaching have so distorted the truth of the gospel that they had become like Gentile unbelievers since they do not appreciate that our salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. The two other descriptions Paul uses here were directed plays on words with Jewish ideas as well. Secondly, evildoers. 
turned people these were people who turned people aside from from truth and freedom these judaizers were oriented towards salvation by good works of the law and took pride in their exemplary lives we have it we have all these things we're the ones you know like we read with Paul, uh, the Paul of the past, and we'll look at this again in a moment, the Paul of the past, he, he considered himself blameless. They considered themselves blameless. In reality, however, what, what, um, what they supposed to be good works were not. They hindered the gospel, providing a stumbling block to genuine faith. The third term that he used here is mutilators of the flesh. Here is a, a figure of a speech employing a sound like, like words in the Greek. Paul um, turned his thoughts to their circumcision. Circumcision represented the requirement of the law and symbolized their approach to God. They took great pride in it. Paul recognized that their circumcision was simply a cutting and therefore a mutilation of the flesh. Um, uh, one of the translators um, translates this portion because he's talking about this again in the book of Galatians and he translates kind of mutilators into the flesh into knife-happy circumcisers. So you get the picture there. They're walking around with their knives grinning and they're going, ha, 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 let's see who we can circumcise here. You see what I'm saying? It's a little creepy, isn't it? But that's what's going on here. Paul is saying, you have turned circumcision into a pagan ritual. You're just like the nations around you who practice circumcision as superstitious pagan ritual of false worship. Brian Chapel notes that it is important, even though he's going down this path, to understand that Paul is not criticizing circumcision here. Chapel says, God, through circumcision, protected the Jewish people in terms of health in a world of primitive hygiene. He also protected them as a mark to mark them in his, as His people. However, in the sign and seal of circumcision, God was doing more. He was painting a picture, a prefiguring message of grace. Think about it just for a moment. A male child was circumcised on the eighth day, which taught the availability of the grace of God, not on the basis of anything they could do. Why? Because as a child at eight days old, you cannot do anything on your own pretty much. So it showed grace. Not only that, but you do not have the ability to earn this grace that comes to you. But at the same time, this grace comes at the cost of the shedding of blood. So here you have this picture of the shedding of blood, prefiguring what Christ would do on the cross. And as a consequence of that circumcision, what was considered to be the unclean portion that was cut off, it represented corruption and the sin and the filthiness of sinful humanity. That was taken away, again, not by the ability of the child, but by the provision of another. Ultimately, chapel continues. Ultimately, later, as that child grew into a man, and this is so significant here, Later, as that child grew into a man, by the act of reproduction, that grace was being made available to future generations. 
to both male and female as God was communicating over and over and over again this truth. Your path to me is made by me and not by you. They had taken this sign of grace to them from God and they had turned it into a religious rite where they discerned, hey, I've been marked. Therefore, on the basis of this, I am pure. I am good with God regardless of what I do, regardless of what I say, regardless of how I act. I am marked. And guess what? You've got to do the same thing if you want to be in Jesus. Again, Paul is saying here that that is not the way. That is a counterfeit way. These outward ordinances will not make you fit for God. Instead, Paul pointed to an inward and true circumcision. So are those things of the same substance today? What are the things of that substance? What might we put our confidence in but Christ? What might the modern day doggish, evil doing mutilator teach today that we need to be aware of? What might we even need to expose in our own hearts as to being counterfeit to the gospel? What's interesting in the text is that Paul kind of helps us out to think through that just a little bit. He really helps us here by pointing back to his former life. It's amazing what he says here. And to be honest, the same things he dealt with then, the same things he's talking about himself back then, are the same things of today. There's nothing new under the sun. Look back at verses 4 through 6. If anyone has reason for confidence in the flesh, guess what? I've got more. <laughs> That's exactly what he's done. I've got more. You want to look at somebody that's good enough to earn their way to God, look at me. What does he say here about himself? He was circumcised on the eighth day after his birth, as law required, going back to the circumcision thing. I've been marked. I've been marked. He was born and bred an Israelite, a member of the people of God. He could also name his tribe. His tribe was very significant. It was the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Israel's first king. It was one that had remained faithful when others had not. He was not only a true Jew, but a Hebrew. Oh, he was a Hebrew. And one of the things that some, a commentator pointed out about this is this, he had, uh, uh, you know, he knew several languages, one of them being Aramaic. And so he had, he, being the son of Hebrew parents, had not lost his native tongue. He had been true to it. He was a strict observer of the law. He was a devout Pharisee, as a matter of fact. And you could see that his zeal was so Pharisee. Why? Because he ran after Christians. Because, see, they were doing those things. They weren't being what they were supposed to be. They were following some nutcase that, that they claimed was risen from the dead. And they weren't following the things of God. And so he chased them down and he killed them or had them killed. And he could say, as far as the external demands of the law were concerned, by the Mosaic law by which he had strived to live, that he was blameless. I have kept, I'm blameless. 
That, however, was a matter of legalistic righteousness, of trying to be right with God on the basis of obedience to the law. So as you read these things, as you look at these things that Paul mentions that he did, in order to be right with God, in order to be in favor with God, what's missing? What's missing? I've done all these things. Religious rituals. Religious acts, I've had religious training. Look at my human ability, my natural uh, giving, my self-sacrifice, my benevolence. Compare me to anyone, anyone else. Even look at the family I come from. Oh, I shine like the stars. Look at me. What is he missing? He's missing Christ. Isn't he? Our faith our hope, if any of that is in anything but Christ, that is not the gospel. If we add anything to Christ, it is not the gospel. You have to... I told the guys, or someone I told, I was reading a book the other day. It was going great. It's one of these more practical theology books. And the guy's like, if, if someone were to ask me what the gospel is, what would I say to them? And, I, you know, some lady had asked him, what would you say to them? What, give me one word. And he said, Jesus. And I'm like, yes. And then he said, but now, and I'm like, oh, Lord, here we go. But now I would say service. And I'm like, you have, you've lost it. Once you add anything to Jesus, anything, He's not a force. He's not a, 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 a bundle of moral teachings. He's a person. You have to get that to understand the Gospel. He's a person. He lives. He breathes. He's with the Father right now. Our faith and hope and trust is in Him and Him alone. As soon as that person wrote something else besides Jesus, my heart fell. Because I knew that's exactly what's going on here in this passage. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus plus anything is out of question for Paul in the Scripture. It is Jesus and Jesus only. Salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. If you add anything else to Christ, as one writer put it, you are actually subtracting from Christ. And you're saying Christ is never enough. It's really and truly about Him. So evaluate your own life. What so-called Christian teaching out there might have tempted you to add to your faith? Is there any penance that you can add to what Jesus has done for you? When you fall and you sin, and it's not some little white line thing, but it's a big deal. When you fall and when you sin, what do you do with that? Do you flagellate yourself? I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to get down on my knees like those people in Rome do. And I'm going to crawl across the jagged rocks. And I'm going to crawl my way to God to pay my penance. No. 
You look at Jesus and you say, you have paid it all. There is nothing I can do. I rest in you. How, on the other hand, might you try to justify yourself? In various witnessing situations throughout the year, the, the, the answer to the question, um, why should God let you into His heaven, is very interesting. Over and over and over again, when you ask that question to people, the number one thing they will say is this, I've been a good person. Oh, really? Compared to what? Compared to who? Maybe Hitler. <laughs> but we're all a hot mess, aren't we? We're all that way. We're all a mess. We, you see, that's why the gospel is so important. That's why we need it, because we're a mess. Because we, when you look at your life, you realize if you're honest with yourself, there's just nothing I can do to earn my way to heaven. There's nothing I can do to justify anything that I am. Nothing. That's not what Paul says. That's not what the Scripture says. That's not what Jesus says. So then we go back to our question. What must we do to be saved? What is the grace fit life? What does it look like? How does it work? Well, let's go to our second point, the grace-fit life. The grace-fit life is, first of all, to, to know, to grasp, to rest in, to understand the gospel truth. The answer to the ultimate question and the answer that you may remember that Paul and Silas gave to that Philippian jailer in Acts 16 is simply this. This is what, this is what Paul and Silas said to him. You know, he, there's been an earthquake, and, and he's a soldier, and he's responsible for everybody. And, and there's, there's this earthquake, and, and the jail opens up, and all those people could have just taken off. And, and he realizes this, and so he, he's ready to kill himself. And Paul says, stop. And he realized that this guy's different. He is different. The talking he's been talking is different. And not only that, but this earthquake could have, the jail could have crushed my head and my skull. What am I going to do? What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And plus, read your Bible. And plus, crawl on your knees and beg for forgiveness. And, 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 no, no, no. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. In your covetousness, in your rage in your lust, in your blame, in your hurt, in your vengeance, in your idolatry, in your richness, in your poverty, in your gender, in your sexuality, in your fear, in your frustration, in your sickness, in your skin color, in your privilege, in your unprivilege, in your helplessness, and in your addictions... In your goodness, in your greatness, in your deeds of wonder, in your pride, in your boasting, in your awards, in your accolades, in your honors, in your tributes, in your reputation, and all that fleshly glory, in all things, in your fallenness of sin and pride, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we're all broken sinners. We're all broken. And we're in need of the unmerited favor of grace. 
The gospel is Jesus. And Jesus, the God-man, the one who came from heaven to earth to become a man, who took on flesh, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, which means he really died. That's what that means. He really died. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Believe in him. And you know what happens? And this is what Paul is referring to here subtly. You know what happens is, is we become united in Christ. It's something that I'm reading a book again by Sinclair Ferguson called The Whole Christ. And in this he talks about, that's one of the things that we just sort of forget about. That it's united in Christ. How do you describe a person in the Bible? Christians, were, we call them us, us, ourselves Christians today, but Christians back in the past, that was a name given to us. Uh, we could say followers of the way, that's used in the Scripture at times. But over and over and over and over again, what we see is, is this idea of united to Him in Christ. Paul speaks to this. Look at verse 7. But whatever I gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Why? How? Subtly, look at verse 1. Look at his subtle words here. Because this is the first time he uses this term here in the text. My brothers rejoice in the Lord. It's the first time he uses in here in Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord. Here we have a truth reality known as the believer's union with Christ. As Paul speaks of the warning again of those false teachers in the teaching of the counterfeit life, he draws us to remember that belief in Christ leads to resting in, not working for, but resting in our union with Christ. Listen to just some of the hundreds of references to this. Believers are created in Christ, Ephesians 2. Crucified with Him, Galatians 2. Buried with Him, Colossians 2. Baptized into Christ in His death, Romans 6. United with Him in His resurrection, Romans 6. Seated with Him in heavenly places, Ephesians 2. Christ is formed in believers in Galatians 4. And He dwells in our hearts in Ephesians 3. The church is the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 6 and 12. Christ is in us, 2 Corinthians 13. We are in Him, 1 Corinthians 1. The church is in one flesh with Christ in Ephesians 5. And next week we'll see this again in Philippians 3 as believers gain Christ and are found in Him. Furthermore, in Christ we are justified, Romans 8. We are glorified, Romans 8. We are sanctified, 1 Corinthians 1. We are called, 1 Corinthians 1.9. We are made alive, Ephesians 2. We are created anew, 2 Corinthians 5. We are adopted, Galatians 3. We are elected, Ephesians 1. Believe in the person of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying here is remember who you are united to. Don't listen to the voices out there. Don't listen to the voices in your own heart. Hear Jesus. Hear Jesus. As we believe and as we rest, then we take full advantage of the benefits belonging united in Christ. Look at verse 3. For we are the circumcision 
who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Believers in Christ are the true circumcision. Why? Because it's not an outward thing. It's an inward thing that the Old Testament told us about. Our hearts have been circumcised. Christians are the true spiritual ones who worship properly as directed by God's Spirit rather than relying on eternal or external rules and places. Remember Jesus telling the woman at the well, yeah, you worship there, but one day my followers will worship in spirit and in truth. And so that beautiful picture of going up to the mountain has now been changed to a beautiful picture of all these people and all these places walking down to their little home church, walking into those glorious churches where there's those big pipe organs that are just thundering out there for the praise and glory of God. And who do we worship as His people? We worship Jesus. We give Him praise. Christians also glory. Yes, they glory. Not in pride, but they glory and not in anything that they do or we do, but only in Christ. We glory in Him, the good one, the obedient one, the one who fulfilled all law. Therefore, those who are united in Christ put no confidence in the flesh, neither in the ritual of circumcision nor in the practice of obeying a law. This stands radically opposed to the false teachers of Paul's day who said Gentiles had to be circumcised and had to be that way to be acceptable to God. Either that day or this day, whatever day there is, we cannot add anything to Jesus. Shall we glory in Christ or in human achievement, religious or other? Genuine believers have their complete hope and complete confidence in Christ's finished work on their behalf at the cross rather than anything done by them or for God in His name. So let me give you something to do this week. I want you to just sit at some point. And I want you to just think about all your sin and all your pride and all of your mess. And I want you to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. You have given me freedom. You have given me salvation. You have given me rest. And just lean into Him. And as you get up and walk away from there, remember as you walk, you are united in Christ. United. In the book Overachievers, there is a story about a boy named Trenton. He's an aspiring football player. He trains seven days a week. I kid you not. Seven days a week, usually with his father, who um, shuns a full-time job to work five flexible part-time positions so that he can help his son practice. That is his father's goal is to help his son practice. On Mondays, Trenton runs through sand dunes. On Tuesday through Thursday nights, Trenton's team practices. Friday nights, Trenton's father relentlessly pushes him to run up and down bleacher stairs in a football stadium. He rehashes Saturday games with Trenton to go over what he did incorrectly or correctly. On Sunday mornings, Trenton goes to the stairs again before an afternoon of drills with a semi-professional quarterback. Every week, Trenton sees a chiropractor so that, as his father says, he is able to function at his highest level. 
And because in games he gets hit and hit and hit again. Trenton's father explains his son's devotion to football this way. Notice his son's devotion to football this way. I haven't exactly achieved the things I set out in life to achieve. His future and my future is tied to football. The major dream in my life that's unfulfilled is not playing in the NFL. I'm hoping that the dream I didn't fulfill will come to life with Trenton. Trenton, at the time of this writing, was eight years old. Now, I want to tell you something. God is not some star-driven father who is whipping you with whips to try to get you in shape to earn your way to Him. You can imagine the damage that's being done to this young man as he thinks that his whole life is about pleasing his father by what he does. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that is not the gospel. Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, help us to be grace-fit. Help us to be grace-fit, to be in Jesus. That's where grace comes from. Help us to rest securely in our hearts and souls in the work of Your Son alone. Back in eternity past, You and Jesus, Father, Your Son, agreed that He would come into this world and do this for us. And He gladly left heaven. I can't imagine. And He gladly came here to die for us because there was no way, there was no way we could ever pay the price for sinning against an infinite being. And so you sent your Son, Jesus, the God-man, the man who identifies with us and the God who is infinite to die in our place that we may have everlasting life. And that's all there is to the gospel. Help us to believe. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and, and prepare hearts as we come to the table.
table this morning, let us be at peace. Let us practice what I talked about just a few minutes ago and be still before the Lord, knowing as we come to this table, this table represents that gospel reality to us, that there is nothing we can do. Nothing. He has done it all. So let's take a few moments of silence and look to Him, would you? Father, thank You for the precious gift that You've given us in Christ Jesus. As we look at these elements that we have before us that we're getting ready to partake in together as Your people, we realize that this was all done by You. You decided in eternity past to come to give Your life as a ransom for many, Lord Jesus. You come to give of your body, to have your blood spilled so that we could have everlasting life. Lord, if we could just for a moment really grasp the deep love that you have for us, how that changes us. Not that we would earn your salvation, but that we would live out of that salvation for your glory and love to you. Oh, Father, thank you so much. May we live as your people to glory in you, to worship in you, to have our hearts sacrificed more and more every day in repentance by the work of your Spirit. Thank you. We thank you for this bread and this fruit of the vine that we partake of. It is to your glory. It is because of your love. It is in light of your grace, we pray. Amen.